we can go. I'm ready. Okay, good evening, everybody, uh, and welcome to the Church of Grace. My name is Patrick Hayes, and today is Friday, January 27th, and we are in Arizona. I forgot to write that anywhere. Let's see if I can reach Jonah, and we are in part five. So let's, uh, let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump on in. Lord, uh, we certainly are grateful that we can be here this evening. Lord, we love you. You are just awesome and powerful. God, you are kind and generous and long-suffering. Lord, you are our creator and our savior. You are our king. And God, we're grateful we can come to you tonight in prayer. And Lord, I just want to ask that you'd please forgive me of any shortcomings and failures and sins in this last week. Lord, I just want to be right with you as we get together here tonight to study the Word of God. And Lord, thank you uh, for this building that we can meet in. Thank you for so many snacks that people brought. Thank you for the hot coffee. And God, thank you for this, uh, you know, this building that's warm and keeps us out of the elements. And, and thank you, Lord, for bringing so many people on a Friday night. Uh, Lord, there's so many things we could be doing, and you bring folks together to study the Word of God, and that's just always amazing and very encouraging. Lord, we want to just ask that you would please be here with us tonight. Please speak through me. Please give us all a, a soft heart. Give us ears to hear. And Lord, I would ask that although we're going over some information that's I think is kind of going to be in left field, I would ask, Lord, that you would still please speak to us very specifically somehow. Uh, just remind us who you are, that you are with us, you are in our life. And um, God, we had people, you know, like every week, had people with good news, had people with bad news, had, had people that were celebrating a great week and some successes and victories and other people that are going through a hard time. And Lord, that's why we need you to you know, kind of deal with everybody and deal with their heart here this evening, because uh, I don't always know what's going on with everyone. God, please give us a good fun time and uh, just be here with us. In your, in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are in Jonah part five. So for anyone who is visiting of a couple visitors at any time, come up here and get another cup of coffee or a cup of tea or another snack. Do not think you're interrupting anything. Uh, the bathrooms are in the back uh, on my right down the hall there. And along with that, you can raise your hand and ask a question. Uh, you can argue with me about something that you don't like that I said. And we're going to, you know, get into some topics in the Bible that might be new. Some are controversial but uh, that's what we enjoy doing here. We get into the weeds. So tonight is no exception. Tonight is going to be a doozy. I'm excited to see how everyone takes it. We already have a question. Yes, ma'am. Yes. No, it was part five. Part five. This is the fifth night we've been going over Jonah, not chapter five. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Not the only one that thought that. Jonah part five. Next time I'll use Roman numerals instead of numbers. <clears throat> All right. <laughs> so 
Let's see. Where did we leave off? Okay, what was the outrageous claim that crazy old Patrick came up with last week that we are clearly going to be talking about tonight? That Jonah died in the whale. Barb, you got a question or comment? Okay. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Mhm. Uh-huh. Mhm. 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 Uh-huh. Well, but those go through his lungs down his trachea, not his esophagus. <laughs> well, when you have air in your stomach, it's called a burp. <laughs> so, but Okay, keep keep in mind, keep in keep in mind, and you're welcome to believe whatever you like, but understand your idea of multiple stomachs in a whale. The the number of stomachs make them all what smaller. That's the that's my point. Okay, now <clears throat> last week the idea that I brought up about Jonah being swallowed and dying fit in like an arrowhead on the moon. And that's okay. Tonight, if you'll give me a little bit of runway, I think I will be able to convince most of you that Jonah died in the whale and three days later he was resurrected just like Jesus. But if you don't believe me, that's fine. What's important is you do your own homework. That's what's important. You read the Bible, you study the Bible, you come to your own conclusions. Now, I will tell you what has ruined Christianity in this story is Pinocchio, VeggieTales, and flannel graph. What happened in Pinocchio? Who here has seen Pinocchio? Okay, and what happened in Pinocchio? He got swallowed by a whale. And when he was in the whale's belly, what was going on? (laughs) When he was in the whale's belly, it was well lit. And he was comfortable with plenty of room, and he was having a conversation with other little boys. In VeggieTales, Jonah and the Whale, what happened to Jonah? Swallowed by a whale, and in the whale's belly, there were ships in there. It was well lit. He was sitting on a boat. They were singing and dancing. 
great musical number. Does anyone know what flannel graph is? Okay, so if you were a little kid raised in church and you went to a Sunday school class, your teacher probably had a flannel graph, and that was a backdrop of a scene from the Bible, and then they was made of a flannel-like material, and then you had all these characters from the made of the material. And as you told the little kids the story, you would stick these characters up on the scene, and you would kind of paint a picture for them. Well, they have one of those for Jonah. And in the Jonah story, what do you find? Jonah sitting cross-legged on a little half floating in the whale's in his station in life. It is well lit and he is comfortable and he's just biding his time until he decides to pray to God and get spit up by this whale. My point is this. <clears throat> what we often do, and we are all guilty of it, is we allow our experiences and popular culture to affect the clear teaching of God's word. So what I ask everybody to do is to take a challenge, which I call the Desert Island Challenge. That's not, I didn't originally come up with that. I heard another preacher tell it tell me about it, but it was a great idea. And that idea is you're alone on a desert island, a comically small desert island with one palm tree and a couple of coconuts, and you're sitting in the shade, and the only thing you have on that island is your Bible. You read that book, what would you believe about the world? What would you believe about every story? In you have no popular culture, of no media in the form of radio, TV, tunes, anything else to affect your opinion, you only have the Bible. You have the Bible and nothing other than the Bible. How are you going to look at all the different stories that we read about in the Bible? And my point is, when you have only the Bible, you're going to look at all of the stories in the Bible very differently, because you don't have Pinocchio giving you the idea that a little wooden boy that came to life and turned half into a donkey and was swallowed whale while he was in the whale until he made the whale sneeze and spit him up. Albeit a cute story, it is very different from the one that we read in the Bible about Jonah. So I'm going to ask that you see some runway because we are going to get in the weeds tonight as far as Jonah chapter 2. And when we're done, if you say, Patrick, I just can't. There's no way that guy died. That's fine. You're allowed to believe that. I'm allowed to be different. I'm allowed to believe differently. Do your own homework. I doubt that we're all going to stand before God one day and find out that we were all right about everything. And this one idea is certainly not going to take down Christianity or rock the foundation of the church. Okay? So everyone take a breath. <sighs> Thank you for the three of you that played along. And let's jump in here to Jonah chapter two, and let's see what we can come up with. We're going to start by reading verses, Jonah chapter two, verses two through 10. So we're going to read through the chapter. 
And then we're going to get into the first two verses. I personally don't think we're going to get past verse two. With that being said, we're going to go over a lot of Bible. Okay, All of these verses in green and all of these verses in black, we are going to get into tonight. So you can, and they're in order. Okay, these are the verses starting with Psalm 120. We're going to go through all these verses. So once we're done with one verse, you can turn in the Bible to the next one and kind of get there ahead of time to figure out what we're talking about. So Jonah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about, all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul, the depth closed me round about, the weeds were wrapped about my head, I went down to the bottom of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. What did that sound like? Verses 2 through, let's call it 9. When we read that, those verses, what did they sound like? Did it sound like any other section of the Bible you ever read? Okay. Sounded like Psalms. If you've read through the Psalms, that sounded like a Psalm. It didn't sound like a person dictating a story. It didn't sound like a person having a conversation with God, like we read about in different parts of the Bible where people pray. What it sounded like was a psalm. Do you know why it sounded like a psalm? Because every single verse from 2 through 9 is a direct quote from a psalm. Jonah was quoting the psalms. That's how he made up all of chapter 2. Jonah is after um, after King David. He is so the Psalms have been written. Okay, the Psalms have been written and are popular in the nation of Israel. So that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> was that the point you were going for? Okay, so we believe. Oh boy, I had dates, Nick. I think I wrote them down, and for they were in Jonah Part One when we went over the dates. I don't remember offhand, Carlos. It, every verse is a direct quote from a psalm. It's not one psalm he's quoting. Yes, there, and yep, and we can and we can go over them. 
So the point here is that none of these words are his own. Jonah took all of the words from chapter two of the book of Jonah out of many of the Psalms. Now, let me ask you this. What were the Psalms? They were songs. The Psalms were songs. These songs written in our Bible, do you know that they have instructions to the singer? Some of the Psalms have instructions to the conductor. There are notations in our Bible that are instructions to people that play certain instruments. The Psalms were a songbook. Not every single one of them, but they were songs. And they were the songs that were sung in the nation of Israel, in the temple of Solomon. <clears throat> you sung these in the synagogues. You sung these in your home. How many of us here have ever sung a psalm? Anyone? Yeah, there are lots of psalms. Now, keep in mind, translating them into English doesn't always allow them to rhyme and have the, um, oh, I'm missing the word. Uh, the, the different words have a different number of syllables based on if you're reading them in Hebrew or if you're reading them in English. So sometimes they're a little clumsy, but some of them work out really well. So these are all song, uh, songs. One of the types of psalms that we see often is a psalm of thanksgiving. And in a psalm of thanksgiving, they all have an order to them. There is an introduction. There is a past distress. The psalmist had an issue where they had a problem. They had sin in their life. They had um, an issue that they were going through, a hardship. Uh, then they have the Lord answering their cry for help. And then they have an acknowledgement of God's grace. And there are dozens of psalms of thanksgiving that we read all through the psalms. And this one works out to the same outline exactly as any psalm of thanksgiving. If you go to Psalm chapter 120, verse 1, we'll look at the first verse of Jonah chapter 2 and his psalm that he writes. Um, and so in Jonah chapter 2, verse 2, we read, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. In Psalm 120, verse 1, in my distress, I cried unto the Lord, and he heard me. When you go through the book of Jonah, chapter 2, verse 3 uh, is Psalm 42, 7, and Psalm 69, 1 and 2. Verse 4 is Psalm 31, verse 22, and Psalm 5, verse 7. Jonah chapter uh, 2, verse 5 is Psalm 69, 1. Now, some of the verses in the Psalms that we hear Jonah recite are a direct, are a direct quote. Some of them are a uh, summarization. Some of them are uh, an illustration or an illusion. So he they are not all a direct quote. So understand when you're looking them up, you'll see that. But he didn't have his Bible with him. He certainly didn't have his phone and a Bible app handy. So Jonah did this from memory. Now, what does this tell us about Jonah? Yeah, he studied. 
Okay, this guy knew his Bible. Do you know that this idea, and, and this idea I'm talking about, <clears throat> of Jonah knowing his Bible, and when he's in distress, being able to call from memory upon these verses, and what was he calling on these verses for? What, was, what were these verses doing for him? They were bringing him comfort and encouragement. Yep, okay, they were calming his feet, were reminding him of who he is and who God is and that everything's going to be okay. Now, this idea encourages and promotes and supports Bible memorization. Let me ask you this. Why should we all memorize our Bible? And when I say memorize our Bible, I don't mean the whole thing. Good luck. If you can do it, boy, I'd be impressed. Okay, but can we memorize certain portions of the Bible that might be a help? Why would we want to memorize our Bible? Carlos, what you got? So if you have a friend, co-worker, family member, and they want to know something about your faith, well, if you don't have your Bible, you know, you're, maybe you're not able to do much. But Carlos, come on. We all have a phone, right? We all got it on our phone. Why do we need to memorize the Bible? Okay. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by the devil, how did he combat that temptation? He quoted the Bible. Okay. Now, Jesus didn't have the Bible. We have the Bible, Nick. We got a phone. I must have four of them. <laughs> Fair enough. Devil did not let Jesus bring his phone to the wilderness. There you have it. We can fight over that later. Joe, what are you thinking? Absolutely. When, when you have the Bible memorized and you hear something that goes against it, you're like, wait a second. Think with me here, folks. This book, keep in mind, this is the only physical thing God gave us. This is it. We find artifacts once in a while, and they're pretty neat. But this is the only thing that God purposely left us, something physical that we can all have that was from God. Who hates this book? Okay, atheists don't like it much. The devil. The devil doesn't like this book. Do you know that this book is the only book that the devil continually tries to pervert and destroy? This is the only book we find in the Bible where we find the devil trying to pervert it and destroy it. This is the only book, as far as I'm aware of, that carried with it a capital punishment at times in the world. To the best of my knowledge, there's no other book in history where if you were caught with it in the wrong country at the wrong time, they would kill you. Absolutely. Yeah, all of the above are exactly why we should memorize our Bible. 
I'm going to, I'm going to say this, mark my words. You can call me a prophet later in my lifetime. Parts of this book will be illegal to read or preach in because it's already illegal in Canada. Parts of this book, laws have been passed, and parts of this book are against the law to preach. You are not allowed to read a verse that condemns homosexuality in public in Canada. You will go to jail. Sure, but you're not allowed to read a verse that is against homosexuality. Thrown in jail for it. You cannot say, okay, that homosexuality is a sin. In Canada right now, you'll go to jail. So I'm not talking about Iran or Arabia, where Bibles are completely illegal. I'm talking about Canada. Um, in 2021. Yep, just two years ago. And it's being fought over. But right now, uh, you are also not allowed to bring up a verse talks about uh, if someone comes to the pastor as, hey, pastor, um, you know, a man comes to him and says, hey, I'm, uh, I'm thinking that I'm really a woman and I want to get changed into a woman. The pastor is not allowed to bring up Bible verses that would persuade that person otherwise. Once again, illegal. So the idea that this book is going to be illegal here in this country should not surprise us. Just give it some time. Give it a little bit of runway. This is the only book that's attacked like that in the world. My point is there might be a day when you don't have one. And there might be a day when you need to encourage yourself to fight temptation. And if you don't have that book, you don't have a phone with a Bible app, okay, it's good to have some verses memorized. It's good to have verses memorized when you need to encourage a friend. There's a million reasons to memorize the Bible. So back to Jonah chapter 2. Um, any of the Jews reading chapter 2 know exactly what Jonah is writing. He is quoting from the Hebrew hymn book. So I don't know if anyone has ever picked up on this, but while I'm preaching, oftentimes I will quote from a hymn or a song that I like in order to make a point. Now, I don't sing it, but I'll do what Jonah is doing. Those of you that know hymns can pick up on that, and you can better understand the point. What I'm trying to say here is, has anyone ever been talking to another Christian friend oh, about how good Jesus is, and, you know, and, and they say, ah, oh, what a friend we have in Jesus? Well, what are they doing? They're quoting a hymn. Okay, what a friend we have in Jesus. Him from the 1860s. And I debated whether I should sing the first verse or not. Okay, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. So Jonah is just using these popular songs to make his point. 
it's something that is done all the time, that what he was doing, there's nothing wrong with it. He was quoting from songs that everyone knew in order to, uh, to make a point. So here's one of our takeaways for this evening. A spiritual Christian knows and applies the word of God. Jonah was scared. He encouraged himself. He told God how and reminded God how great he was. And he did these things by quoting the Bible. A spiritual Christian knows the Bible and is able to apply the word of God to their life when they need it. When we're in trouble, it can bring us comfort. When we're confused, we can get answers. When we're angry, we can find peace. So the spiritual Christian knows their Bible, and it can help them in their day-to-day -day life. Now we're going to get off into the weeds. In Jonah chapter 2, verse 2, Jonah compares the belly of the whale to something. What does he compare it to? He compares it to hell. Why does he compare it to hell? Say that again. So literally, he compared it to hell because of the fear, loneliness, and pain he was going through inside the fish. I think that's a very reasonable idea. What's that? No. No, but that is the word that Jonah used for hell, and we're going to get into that. Uh, allegorically, Jonah was in hell for three days. Who else was in hell for three days? Jesus was. We're going to get into that. And literally, Jonah was writing this from hell because he was literally in hell. So those are three ideas you can use as far as where he was going with verse 2. Now, I know that some of you might be looking at me askant and a little curious as to where I'm going, and I'm going to try to give you a, I don't want to say five-minute, a 30-minute crash course on the afterlife and the underworld. And at the end of this, I'm going to welcome a lot of questions, and I think it'll all make sense, but if you will... Give me a little runway. Um, we are going to get into the underworld and hell. So if you were ever going to take notes, now would be the time. In the Bible, there are five words that are rendered hell in an English translation of the Bible. Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, Abuso, and Tartarus. We find all five of these words used as hell in the Bible. So we're going to start out by uh, defining these words, and then we're going to kind of talk about them a little bit and see how they relate to Jonah chapter 2. So the first word we're going over. Now, I turn, I hand it over to everybody a set of notes, and these are pretty close to the notes that I'm going to be reading from. So there aren't going to be any surprises, but I figured rather than jotting it all down, you can just have them right in front of you. So Sheol. Sheol is uh, a Hebrew word, and it is the location for the departed souls. Uh, so Sheol is the abode of the dead, 
And the important thing for us to notice about the word Sheol is that it is the place that the dead go, both saved and unsaved. <clears throat> in the Bible, there is another word um, in Hebrew called kibar, which means to bury. It's the word that is used to describe a grave. And uh, these are different terms that sometimes get mixed up or are used synonymously. Uh, the differences are that kibar can be plural, meaning you can have many graves, whereas sheol is never plural in the Bible. Uh, you can purchase or sell a grave. You do not purchase or sell sheol. People in the Bible own a grave as property. Sheol is never owned by a man in the Bible. And a grave is in a specific location, whereas Sheol is never localized. Uh, people uh, are sent there, and its lo location is geocentric, meaning it is in the center of the earth. Any questions so far? Okay. Hades is a Greek word. So Sheol is Hebrew. The remaining four words here are Greek, which means we find them in the New Testament, not the Old. Hades is the Greek word that is used for hell in literature today, and it's what most of us think of when we think of hell. So this is the bad portion of Sheol. It is the abode of the unsaved dead prior to the great white throne judgment. That is what we find in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. The great white throne judgment is the final judgment for those who the lake of fire. Uh, we find in the Bible that Hades is a prison. We can read about that in 1 Peter 3.19. And it has gates and locks. And we find that written in Matthew 16 and Revelation 1. These are just neat little descriptions that we uh, find in hell when we read through the Bible. Okay, Gehenna is an actual place. It was originally the Valley of Hinnom, which is an area south of Jerusalem where uh, dead animals were cast out of the city and burned. And this Gehenna is the lake of fire. Uh, that we find written about in the Bible, and it is the final destiny of the unsaved people who are temporarily held in Hades or Sheol. Uh, the Hinnom Valley afterwards became the city dump in Jerusalem. This is back in the days of Christ. Uh, the fire was continually burning, and it became for um, a place of everlasting fire and burning. So, uh, Jesus uses this phrase 11 times in the Gospels, um, and the, the way you uh, sort out Hades and Gehenna, Hades is temporary, Gehenna is forever. Okay, two more places to talk about as far as the underworld. You have Tartarus, which is another word that's also translated as hell. Now, this one is interesting uh, because it is only used one time in the entire Bible, and that is in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, when Peter is describing where the fallen angels are being incarcerated. These fallen angels have been locked up for their sin in Genesis chapter 6, 
they will remain there until the great white throne judgment and their destiny, which will be the lake of fire. Any questions on Tartarus? Sure. Uh, simply because um, if you are reading the Old Testament, you're going to read a Hebrew word, which is Sheol, and the New Testament, you're going to read a Greek word, which is Hades. So Sheol ends up being... Correct. As a matter of fact, it I wouldn't say Sheol can be. Sheol is where the saved and the unsaved go. Hades is the portion where the unsaved are. So you would accurately explain to someone that... Um, so, so the way it, the way it works, and I'm really just going to... So what you have, this whole thing is the underworld, and we would call the whole thing Sheol. And then what you have in the underworld is two locations. And the uh, bad one would be Hades. And for that matter, I think my picture didn't do a very good job of drawing that because I think I kind of made it look like... Um, anyway, um, the bad place is Hades, which we also call the place of torment. So if in the Old Testament, they only used Sheol to describe everything. Think of it as modern-day Christianity. We describe all of it as hell. That's what we hear. No, whether we're talking about the fallen angels in Genesis 6 that left their first estate, okay, we hear them being sent to hell. When we hear about the devil being cast into the pit for a thousand years, he was cast into hell. And uh, the story in Luke 16, where you have the rich man and Lazarus, we hear that that rich man went to hell. Three different places in the underworld, all technically hell. But there are more descriptive terms that we find used in the Bible to denote one place as being different from another. But all of the underworld is talked about as Sheol when you're in the Old Testament, which is the only Hebrew word that they used for all of it. Did that help any? Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see. Okay, then we have the abuso, uh, which is a term used to describe the bottomless pit. Uh, Satan will be bound there for a thousand years during the millennial reign of Christ, Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. It is also the place from which the demon locust will emerge in Revelation 9. Okay, so this is we're going to get more we're going to get into some more details here but that is the overview as far as learning the terms to understand how the underworld works 
Now, I know some of you have heard me teach this before, so it might be a little bit of a review. And for some of you that might be wondering what I'm talking about, uh, we're going to cover this topic kind of in entirety now by reading from Luke 16 to try to kind of wrap this up. Okay, so Luke 16, and we're going to go over verses 19 through 31. So if you have a Bible, go to Luke 16. You're going to want to look at this for sure, because we're going to hang out here for a minute or two. We're going to be here so long that I'm going to get some more coffee while you guys all turn to Luke 16. What's that? Carlos, I wrote it on the whiteboard <laughs> so you could just see it. But for the record, it's Luke 16. Okay, Luke chapter 16. I'm going to read through verses 19 to 31, but I'm going to stop at a couple places to give some uh, color to the story. This is Jesus telling the story, by the way, if you want to go back a few verses to get some context. Luke 16, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So in this story, there are two people discussed in this passage. We have Lazarus and the rich man. They are both literal people. This is not a parable. Does anyone know how you can identify a parable? Yes. Very good. You never find specific names in parables. Was there something else you were going to say, Dominic? Okay. The other thing you always find about parables is Jesus starts every single one by saying, this is a parable. He literally does that every single time. He says, let me tell you the parable of the mustard seed. And then he tells you about the parable. So Jesus wants us to know this two guys and what happened to them. Moving on, verse 22, and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was and in hell and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So here we see two distinct locations. One is hell, one is Abraham's bosom. The rich man was in hell, and there he encounters torment, and he encounters flames. We haven't gotten to that verse, but verse 14 explains that there are flames there. Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. There is water there, and he is not in torment, and he is comforted. We're going to read that in verse 25. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, this is the rich man talking, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. 
But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. So although the rich man are both in the same general vicinity, as you can see by the picture on your notes, they are separated by a gulf. It keeps one side from being able to cross over to the other. Something you also notice is that the rich bosom, but those on the other side never see those in hell. The way it works is as if you are standing outside in the dark looking in a window to a lit house. You can see inside that lit house. You can see what everyone's doing. But anyone that looks through the glass to try to see the person outside in their front yard in the dark can see nothing. It is the same way. In hell, one of the descriptive parts or one of the descriptive want to say descriptive adjectives, but that's redundant. One of the adjectives describing hell is darkness. Absolute, complete, utter, terrifying darkness. No matter how much you squint or try to focus your eyes, you never see anything. It is complete blackness and darkness. So my belief is that Lazarus on the other side, it was lit up there. So I think he was able to cross. The guess is that everyone was. But honestly, Joe, there's not enough information for me to give you a better answer than that. Stephanie? <clears throat> Fire doesn't have to produce light. Yeah, I know. Sounds funny, right? Okay. Nope, part of it has to do with what's burning. When you burn certain chemicals, it produces visible flames. Now, I don't know if that's what's going on. I'm just saying that's physically possible. Yeah. So what we know is that it is darkness and there is fire. In the same way, let me ask you this. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good, and, okay, and God divided the light from the darkness, first day. So what was there on day one? What did God make on day one? Light. When did God make the sun? <laughs> Day four. How was there light with no sun? Well, and we find that out. So <laughs> we find out that God, in Revelation, we find out that there is no sun, but there is light, and God is the one that had, okay, God's the light. My point is there can be light without sun, there can be fire without light. I, that's, that's all I'm trying to say is we see God uh, do things like that. But if you, if you want more of the physics to it, I have no idea. Yeah, I, I just, I don't know. 
Okay, let's get back to this. Verse 27. <clears throat> then he said, therefore, and this is the rich man talking again. And who's he talking to? Abraham. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house for all five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went on to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now, these last five words provide some of the most disturbing ideas in all of Christianity, and I don't know if we're going to get into them today. But this idea of two places, one being this place of torment and the other being Abraham's bosom, who do we find in this place? We find Abraham and we find Lazarus. This is the place that all saved people go to after they die prior to one event on earth. What event? is keeping them here instead of going right to heaven. Rick? Barbara? We are. Mm -hmm. But what's keeping them from being able to go there? Joe? Okay. Nick? All, all of you guys are given parts of it, and it's it's going to be part of the story. Nick gives the famous eight-year-old answer whenever the Sunday school teacher asks a question. The little kid hollers out, Jesus. You have a 60% chance of getting the question right. Okay, anyone want to give a more specific answer? Washington? The crucifixion. Okay, so we're going to we're going to cover this, like I said, in its entirety. Bear with me. We still have to get further into the weeds before we can come back and, and pull it all together and, and have this make sense. This place, which we call hell, this place of torment and fire and darkness, is where unsaved people went after they died. Both the saved and the unsaved went to this place that we vaguely, vaguely call hell, Sheol. The saved people go to this place. There is a gulf dividing the good from the bad. The Bible says that the people on this side are comforted. They are surrounded by other saved people. Abraham's there. There is water there. I know it doesn't give us a whole lot of details, but I'm giving you what we have. It, okay, it is. It is described by Jesus. What does Jesus call it when he's on earth? Paradise. He calls it paradise, and we're going to get to that in a second. And then you have this place, which is the place of torment. There's fire. There is darkness. Okay, um, uh, And this is the holding place until the final judgment. Now, in hell, 
there are multiple locations we see discussed in the Bible. The most important of these two for today's discussion is Abraham's bosom and this place of torment. Jesus calls the place where Lazarus was waiting paradise. All saved people who died prior to Christ dying on the cross went to paradise. Question that still hasn't really accurately been answered yet, but we're going to in a second, is why did they go to paradise rather than to heaven? Deb? That is also true, but not what I'm looking for. Mac? Anyone else? <laughs> what do you think? Okay, the sins haven't been washed away. What do you mean? Okay, so Nick, Nick, Nick's, Nick's hitting this. Those who were saved in the Old Testament and those who received salvation in the New Testament received it the same way, by faith. There is no different way people were saved at any time throughout Earth's history. Everyone was saved by faith. And we, if we go with a timeline, that's the end of the world, this is the beginning of the world, this is the crucifixion, and we here have faith in an event that has already happened. Who here saw Jesus get crucified? Who here spoke to Jesus? Who here saw his miracles? Who here believes Jesus crucified and he miracles and that he was God? Okay, you believe those things by faith because you didn't see it. You believe it. And you have reasons to believe it, but we have faith in an event that happened long ago. Those back here in the Old Testament got saved. By having faith. They had a faith in God that is expressed in different ways throughout the Old Testament. Many of them literally had faith that a Messiah was going to come. And they believed that. They talked about it. Isaiah talks very clearly about this. In the Old Testament, we are told this Messiah will be born of a virgin. We are told he will be uh, executed by crucifixion. We are told the city in which he will be born. We are told many events of his life. And those in the Old Testament believed what was written down in the Torah, they believed what the prophet said, and God counted it to them for righteousness. They believed God. That's all they did. Go to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. This is an important one. We're going way back, but I want you to see this and get this idea. Friends, I know this is a lot, and I know that you probably haven't had this lesson taught to you every other Sunday while you're in church because it's out in the weeds and a lot of folks don't get around to it, but it's right in the middle of what we're here in Genesis chapter 15, after God makes himself known to Abraham and tells Abraham, you are my guy, you are going to have a large family 
land of the sea, and you are going to bless this land that you are now, and I'm going to make a covenant with you. We read, and this is Abraham, God talking about Abraham, and he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. How did Abraham get the righteousness of God? By belief. That's it. He had faith. I am going to, not because of my righteousness, because my righteousness is worthless. I am going to Christ. And I got the righteousness of Christ because of faith, not because of anything I've done, but because of what he did 2,000 years ago on the cross. And in the Old Testament, was no different. So Abraham received the righteousness of God by believing in him. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, King David, Patrick Hayes are all in heaven because they had faith. Do you like how I lumped myself in with all those other guys? Okay. <clears throat> Barbara. It is, but you got to understand, you and I can look back on the blood. So let me, let me ask you this. If I'm going to lead someone to the Lord, I want to make sure they understand the basic four things necessary to get saved. That number one, they are a sinner, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, Romans 3.23, we're all sinners. Number two, for the wages of sin is death. The Bible says that just like you and I work and get a wage, like minimum wage, we get paid for the work we do. In the same way, when we sin, we get a wage, and that wage is death. And Revelation chapter 20, verse, I think it's 8, says for uh, that it talks about the second death, which is being cast into the lake of fire. Okay, so for our sin, the penalty is death and hell. Okay, that's the penalty. It's terrible news, but that's what the Bible says. Number three, Jesus made a way. So Jesus came to earth. He was born of a virgin. He grew up a perfect sinless life. When he was about 30 years old, he started to teach and to preach around the nation of Israel. He performed many miracles to show everyone he was God. Um, he walked on water, he healed the blind, and then Jesus, uh, was arrested, uh, even though he was innocent, he was convicted of a capital crime. He was beaten, he was tortured and he was crucified. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. And while Jesus was on the earth and he was teaching, he explained to everybody, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the father, but by me. He said, when he was asked about how to go to heaven, he said, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus compares salvation to a one-time irreversible event, being born physically. But we got to be born spiritually into God's family. And in Romans 10, 9, and 10, Paul explains that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And in Romans 10, 13, he says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
So if you believe that you're a sinner, you believe that the penalty for sin is hell and you are going to go there and you believe Jesus is God and he did all the work for you on the cross, then you can call on the Lord Jesus and he shall save you. Not might save you. You don't hope that you're saved. Jesus says, or Paul said, uh, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, right? Okay, so uh, the last thing we need to do is we need to have faith that Jesus is God and his work on the cross is sufficient. Okay, so that's the basics for someone getting saved. Now, you brought up the blood. Now, if I were to explain this to my daughter, Grace, who is fine, she could understand those four steps. We could read the Bible together. She could believe everything I'm explaining, and she could get on her knees and pray and ask Jesus to forgive her and save her, and, uh, and, and, and she's on her way to heaven. Now, later on, we're going to read about the first Passover and how that lamb, the blood, was on the doorpost, and God said, okay, uh, if, if you don't have the blood, then the angel of death is going to come through, and the tenth plague of Egypt, the firstborn of that house, is going to die. But when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And that was a picture of what is going to come, because Jesus, what, do we call, what was Jesus called in John chapter 1, verse 29, by John the Baptist when he went to the Jordan River to get baptized? John the Baptist saw him coming from afar off and said, Behold! the Lamb of God. And we find out that Jesus is that Passover lamb that we read about thousands and thousands of years ago. And what day was it when Jesus was crucified? It was Passover. And Jesus took the place of that lamb because the Jews were killing a lamb every year, but that, that didn't do it. And then we saw that the blood of the lamb was sufficient all of those are totally true and a big part of salvation, but you're kind of talking about salvation 101, and then when we get into who Jesus was and him fulfilling prophecy and the blood and the lamb, that's salvation 102, you know, and we can get deep topic of who God was and how Jesus saved us, but you see how salvation is so simple that it really comes down to when we believe, okay, that's all, that's all that it takes. Do you believe that you're a sinner, that you're going to hell, that Jesus is God and he made a way when he died on the cross? You're ready to get saved. Think of the thief on the cross. Now, the reason I bring that up, and we're going to talk about it here, is when you see the conversation between Jesus and him, it was a conversation that you and I could read through in 45 seconds. And at the end of it, the thief said to Jesus, he called him Lord. So he acknowledged that Jesus was God. He acknowledged his sin and the justification for him being crucified. He acknowledged that he was a sinner and he deserved this. And he asked Jesus to remember him when he went to his father's kingdom. Now, that's not typically how we would see someone saved today. But Jesus said to him, you're going to be with me today in paradise. So once someone acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah and that his work on the cross is, you know, sufficient for our salvation, that's all it takes. Joe, what do you got? 
we're going to get there. It's a great segue. Okay, let me get back to it, and we'll get back to more questions. Okay, so <clears throat> Abraham received righteousness of God by believing. Symbolically, the sin of these men in the Old Testament was covered by the blood. We see this in the first Passover story when the blood was put on the doorpost, and God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. <coughs> when God sees that blood, he does not see the sin. Throughout the Old Testament, we read about sin being covered by the blood. So go to Psalm 32 verse 1, we're going to start going through these verses, and I know you see what time it is and that we have like 25 more verses. We will go through them quickly and uh, try to wrap this up, and I won't finish the lesson tonight. <clears throat> In Psalm 32 verse 1, we read, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. In Hebrews 10.4, we read... For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. We find out that the blood of bulls and goats is insufficient. That's why those in the Old Testament were waiting for the Messiah. They knew that they needed more. They were waiting for the Messiah to come. And the blood of the bulls and the goats from all those years, from the time of Moses on Sinai all the way up through King David, all the way up to the Babylonian captivity of Malachi, the time between the when we read about the Hanukkah story, all the way up to the time of Christ. What were they doing in that temple every day? Every day. I sing. They were killing the animals. They were spilling the blood. And what we read is none of that blood was sufficient. And the Bible in the Old Testament describes that blood as covering the sin. But it was still there. It was just covered. In 1 John 1.9, we read, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, Jesus, who John the Baptist called the Lamb of God, ends up dying on the cross during Passover, and his blood was shed, God's blood, perfect blood. This blood did not cover our sins, it completely removed them. Gone. The blood of Jesus cleanses our sin, and it is gone of Jesus is applied to our soul, that is what saves us. It is still the blood that saves from sin. Now in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, we read, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So it is only by the blood of Christ that we receive forgiveness of sins. That is, blood is a staining agent. If you spill it on concrete or cotton or anything, it's stained and ruined forever. In the Bible, the blood of God actually cleanses things. 
It's the only thing that can wash away sin. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 16 through 19, we read, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Because of the blood of Jesus, God doesn't remember our sins and iniquities. His blood cleansed my soul. It's as if my sins are gone. It's like they never happened. That's why when we stand before God one day, the Bible talks about several books. One of those books has my name on it. And in that book is recorded every sin I have done in my entire life. And when I stand before God, the Lord will call to the angel and say, open the book and read from it. And he will open that book and he will say its pages are empty. There were no sins to lay to my charge. Not that there were sins that were forgiven, they are literally gone, as if they never happened. Okay, so because of this, the way it works that we read in the Bible, all the saved people who died prior to Christ went to paradise. Why did they go to paradise rather than heaven? Because the blood of Christ wasn't shed yet. There was no blood to apply to their soul to clean all the sins. It didn't make them any less saved. They had faith, and they were here in a place of comfort that Jesus called paradise with all the other saved. And they were waiting for this time. I don't know if they knew it was going to happen. I mean, I don't know if when they got down there, God, you know, Gave a spoiler alert. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how it worked. Okay, but they were waiting for the crucifixion when Jesus died and the blood was shed and that blood could be applied to their souls and now their sins are gone and now now they are able to go to heaven. In Luke 23, verse 42 and 43, when Jesus was on the cross, the thief on the cross said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. That means when Jesus died on the cross, his body was laid in the tomb, but Jesus went down to hell, to the center of the earth, and set those free who were waiting in Abraham's bosom. Now Jesus explains this in two more verses that we're going to, Try to get through quickly. All we have to do, look at this. we got three verses left. Look how fast we did that. Okay. Let's look at Luke chapter, no, Ephesians chapter 4, 8 through 10. You ready for this? Because this, this is one of the most descriptive verses explaining that Jesus went down to hell prior to ascending to heaven. Ephesians 4, 8 to 10, wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended 
first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. What does the Bible in Ephesians 4 say Jesus did prior to ascending into heaven? Descended. Where? It's what it says, into the center of the earth. Because he had a mission to do that the Father gave him. In Luke chapter 4 and in Isaiah 61, it explains what he did while he was down there. He had a mission from the Father. Jesus wasn't just sightseeing. Let me give you the quick explanation of what's going on here in this verse in, in, the, in Luke. Okay, the way it worked in the Old Testament, when the Sabbath day came, all the Jews were in the synagogue, and they have a reading schedule. So every synagogue was going through the same portion of the Bible every Saturday. And every year they would go through this. So no matter where you went to visit, you went to that synagogue, they were studying the same portion of the Torah that you were studying at home. So it was easy to follow along. And the custom was when a new guy visited, if it was Louis's turn to get up and expound on the word of God, or if it's Nick's turn, they would go to the the visitor and say, we would be honored if you would share the portion of the Torah today. And Jesus ended up visiting this town in Luke chapter four, and he entered the synagogue. And as the custom was, they handed him the scroll. Well, nobody knew this guy. They handed him the scroll because he was the visitor. And not to get off too far into the weeds, but did you ever wonder how Paul was able to go to every synagogue on earth during the book of Acts and walk right in and take the Bible and start preaching to everybody? That was the custom. Every time Paul went to a new synagogue, they would say, hey, welcome, brother. Would you be so kind? How would it go over today if I just started walking into churches on Sunday mornings and walking to the front and expecting to preach a little message? Yes, it wouldn't go well because that's not our custom, but that was their custom. So they hand Jesus this scroll. He opens it up to the book of Isaiah, chapter 61. And in Luke 4, verses 17 through 19, this is what he reads. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, I, now Jesus was reading from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, and I'm going to read that in Isaiah 61. The spirit, of the, uh, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Who are these captives Jesus is talking about? Who's this big group of wonderful good people that are somehow captive that need to be freed? And the opening of the prison to them that are bound. What? How did we read about hell being described in other parts of the Bible? It's described as a prison with bars and a gate and locks. And Jesus said, <clears throat> I am come for the opening of the prison to them that are bound. 
The only saved people we can find captive are those who are saved who died before Christ. They were awaiting the crucifixion and the blood of Jesus to be applied to their souls. This verse in Isaiah describes saved people in a, quote, prison. They are, quote, bound, and Jesus is going to open the prison. The saved in Abraham's bosom are able to go to heaven after Jesus visited them and applied the blood. Currently, Abraham's bosom is empty, and the rich man in hell is still waiting for a drop of water. Any questions on that extremely long tour in the underworld? Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where we're going with this, I believe, and remember, I know I'm alone on this belief, and that's fine. I believe Jonah was swallowed by the fish. He knew that he was going to die. He knew that he was receiving God's judgment. And in verse 2, and in two other verses in this psalm, it sounds like he has died, and he is in hell. And that is where Jonah chapter two is written. Now, Patrick, how do you make that link? Remember, Jonah is a type of Christ. Jonah was thrown overboard to his death willingly. Right? So was Christ. Jonah was thrown overboard to his death in order to save everybody that was there. Jonah dies and is resurrected. Jonah goes down to hell Yes. Yep. Yeah, hell being the general place, Abraham's bosom. And how long was he there? Three days. Now, friends, again, you don't have to believe what I'm telling you. What do you have to do? Your own homework. That's what you got to do. But understand, there is a reason that I come to this. And we haven't even gotten into chapter two yet and looked at the verses that both describe his death and describe hell. I rest my case. Any questions? What's that? Well, Washington, did you have a question? Carlos? That's okay. So, any question on Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, the Abuso, Tartarus, Abraham's bosom, and the place of torment on that whole thing? Carlos? 
No, give it to me. Yep. Set free the captives. It does. It's just empty. You got it. Hell is continually filling. In the Bible, it describes hell as expanding. Yes, Nick. Yes, Gehenna is not in that description at all. The Bible says that in Revelation chapter 20 that death and hell deliver up their dead and all the unsaved of the world stand on the great white throne judgment and then death are cast into the lake of fire. So everyone down here in hell, including everyone in the other two locations, which we didn't even get to, okay, Tartarus, they are all delivered up. So we have all the lost, all the fallen angels, all the demons. Yes, they're different. All the fallen angels that left their first estate. They are all delivered up great white throne judgment. They are all found guilty and they are all cast into the lake of fire with hell. And that is the final resting place of the damned. Great question. Any other questions? Don't you love this? I mean, this stuff is neat. <laughs> it does make you think. The biggest frustration that people have when you're talking about eschatology, which means the study of the end times, and prophecy, and church doctrine for that matter, is that the Bible is not broken up into neat little chapters where it's the chapter on... If, if we wrote a book, we would write a book, chapter on heaven, chapter on hell, chapter on angels, chapter on demons, right? And we would just go over everything about them. But that's not the way the Bible's written. So we read some here and some in this book and some in this book, and you got to grab them all and put them together and then do the best you can to figure it out. And sometimes it's very easy and straightforward, and other times it's a little trickier. Washington. Oh, sorry. It looked like you were raising your hand. Carlos. Um, so in, uh, Jesus did preach the, um, the That's what it says. I have no idea what the message was. I assume it was a, you know, something pretty encouraging. <laughs> Mother's Day kind of message. Yeah. Oh, you're talking about he had something to say to these guys? Yeah, I don't think Jesus needed to convince them that he was right. I think they knew. Uh, well, <laughs> okay, last chance. We got to close in a word of prayer here at an hour and a half, and I am so grateful for everybody's patience. Uh, I know that went very long. Next week, Jonah, part six, we will actually go through Jonah chapter two and read each verse. We will, I promise you. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Good job, everybody, for hanging in there. Lord, we love you. We're grateful that you can be here with us. Thank you, thank you, thank you for tonight and, and, the, and the patience and kindness of all these good people to let me ramble on and try to get through this very long, you know, Bible study that was a little bit out in the weeds. 
Lord, uh, please bless everyone uh, on their weekend. Keep everyone safe on the drive home. And Lord, help us in this next week to be more like you and less like us. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, if anyone else.